Hi and welcome back. This is episode 27 of Police Stories Podcast. This is a series of short stories about my 28-year career in the UK police force. This is the second recording I made of this episode. Hopefully we're going to get through this one. Uh, on the previous one I was explaining how I don't have some Gucci recording studio. I generally go and sit in a caravan in my garden because it actually gives reasonably good acoustics without too much echo. I'm back in a house and unfortunately it is a bit echoing here. Uh, the one big problem with the caravan is um, if it starts raining it ruins it because it's actually quite loud on the roof of the caravan. And having just explained that, five minutes after that, it started raining quite heavily, so it's ruined the last recording, so I've had to start again. So hopefully we get through this one all right. Um, so today we're going to talk about uh, firearms, and in particular my initial AFO course, my authorised firearms officer course. Um, it's, uh, it's still a big deal here in the UK, and again, I know people from around the world, particularly the US, will be surprised. Um, you know, that it's a big deal here because I know you're sort of pretty familiar with guns. Um, but we still, uh, you know, it, it is getting worse without a doubt. You know, firearms are becoming more easily available, but it's very tightly controlled here. You know, you can't legally own a pistol. Well, there's a couple of exceptions. Um, one of those is you can have like a black powder pistol from the sort of American Civil War where, you know, you're putting in charges and tamping down, you know, little round lead balls and things. Um, not very reliable, not very practical, um, so I think they're deemed as sort of historic weapons and, and certain people are allowed to have those on ranges. Um, but generally very difficult to get hold of firearms, uh, unfortunately now becoming more and more available um, through various means. One of those means is by um, criminals identifying uh, you know, who are legitimate firearms holders and then they target their addresses and they'll take you know, either oxyacetylene torch or maybe a cordless angle grinder or something uh, and once they've broken into the house they target the safe and then if they you know as long as they've got time they basically eventually will get into that safe and be able to steal a firearm and technically the ammunition should be kept separate as well but equally you know they can defeat these things given enough time so that's that's one route for criminals to be getting uh, access to firearms here uh, another one is, um, you know, a lot of Eastern Europe is absolutely awash with, uh, you know, cheap handguns and things. So we've seen those coming across in various ways. Obviously, there's lots of ports in the UK. We're an island nation, ultimately. So all our stuff comes in via sea, container ships or, or the air, uh, less commonly. Um, so there's obviously ways for firearms finding in, you know, their way into the country like that. And the other one is uh, BB guns and things or, or sort of deactivated weapons or starter pistols that people with a little bit of engineering knowledge are able to convert back into viable firearms. They're not normally very accurate. They're not normally particularly powerful, but, you know, close up, they do the job in terms of, you know, if you're a bad guy wanting to shoot someone. So that's some of the ways the weapons come into the country. Um, at the time, we're talking now 25 years ago, um, the, the force that I worked in, um, they didn't have a formal ARVs. There was no armed response vehicles as such. The Met had them, the bigger cities, Liverpool, Manchester, who were just starting to get a bit of a firearms problem, had them. But, uh, it, you know, the force I was in didn't. What they had was some centrally based SFO, specialist firearms officers, who worked in plain clothes and in plain cars, so not in uniform and no marked cars generally. 
and they would come out to you and respond from their central location should there be an issue. Now, one of the problems with that is you had, if you were right on the outskirts, on the edges of the county, you know, you could be waiting an hour for them. So there was definitely a bit of a shortfall and that was recognised, you know, a long, long time ago. So what happened was they trained up a series of county AFOs. These were people um, that basically had, you know, minimal training, but they were only asked to do the very basics. And that basics was contain an address, you know, now in the UK, um, generally not into sort of you know smashing doors down and entering uh, houses with guns you know that that is um, about as high risk as it gets for everyone involved both both the people within that house and certainly the officers going in and so it's something we would try and avoid I mean we have the capability we can do it um, but generally containment is very much the thing in the UK you know we're quite happy to basically surround the house and spend some time and if that's days so be it waiting negotiating and trying to bring that person out because bringing that person out of their sort of comfort zone with any traps they've set and barricades they've made um, is far safer than us entering into their domain you know where they know everything about it and they've had a chance potentially to prepare that address you know we've seen front door handles rigged up to the main so that they're live with electricity and things um, you know when people have had time to prepare booby traps so we'll always try and contain the place and, and, and bring people out. There are some exceptions and we'll deal with them probably on another day because pretty much nothing's uh, black and white, is it? Especially in policing, there's quite often some gray areas. You know, firearms in the police, very, very controversial. Lots of people in other countries can't believe that the UK still police, you know, without routinely arming their officers, you know. Um, it, it's always been like that. Um, certainly way back in the day, you know, I'm talking now 50, 60 years ago when my dad joined the police, you know, um, there was no formal training or very little. Um, a lot of forces basically, you know, identified people that were, you know, had been in the military, so they had some firearms experience. And, and literally my dad has told me stories of being on jobs and them saying to people, you know, you were in the army, you know how to handle a gun. Uh, you know, and they'd be like, uh, yeah, I suppose, you know, they'd be like, right, well, here's a revolver, you're coming out to this job, you know. Um, so there was no sort of formal training. Um, and generally, they, they got away with it, I think, you know, but there definitely was a need perhaps for some formalised training and also to bring in people that had not had firearms experience because, um, you know, you might assume that a soldier or an ex, you know, sort of Royal Navy person or someone like that is perfect because they're used to handling firearms and, and being around weapons. But, you know, military thinking and military sort of um, firing rules of engagement are very, very different to policing. Um, in policing, you know, certainly in the UK, you have to account for every single round of ammunition fired. There's no kind of spray and pray. You know, you're not going to fire off 10 or 15 rounds in the general direction of someone. You know, it's single aim shots, every one of which you have to account for. And it may be on a job, you have to fire six shots, for example. Unusual, but you could do. Five of those shots might be perfectly lawful, justified and legal. The sixth shot could get you charged with murder, you know, because there's so many different circumstances. And a lot of cops will shy away from firearms work because they just don't need the hassle of what happens after, you know, after a shooting. You know, you can very much be hauled over the coals. And unfortunately, I have experienced that. So again, we'll talk about that in a future episode. But for now, uh, we're going to deal with this course I went on. So... We've already said that, you know, you had these officers based centrally who had their weapons held in, you know, a sort of a central armoury. 
Um, but what happened was the bigger police stations on the edges of the county and right across the county, they would hold a small amount of weapons in a safe in the inspector's office. And if you were a county AFO and something happened locally, you might be called upon to go and contain the house. That's a posh word for, you know, surrounding the house effectively. And to do that, you would have a couple of um, MP5s. Um, they are, you know, a short sort of submachine gun, although we never had the sort of full auto capability. It was, it was semi-automatic. So you had to pull the trigger for each round that was fired. You know, there was no kind of uh, burst of fire or anything like that. It was single aim shots, as I said. So MP5, Hector Cock MP5 and nine millimeter was very much the sort of mainstay weapon. Um, if you were slightly more advanced, then you would carry a pistol as well. And at that time, it was a 9mm SIG P226. I know I'm getting a little bit nerdy now. I do tend to do that. Some of you may be interested. Some of you are probably rolling your eyes and thinking, just get on with it. But um, So it was just to let you know. But generally, county AFOs who went out locally to deal with, with uh, small jobs and contain them until the the SFOs, the specialist firearms officers got there, would just carry an MP5, no pistol, that would be it. Um, I mean, the MP5 is a great weapon. You know, within 15 minutes, I could teach you to accurately fire that weapon. You know, really, really good, um, good firearm uh, for what it's intended and was very popular in the sort of police and military world. Police have gone away from it a little bit now. It is still used in certain circumstances, I believe, but one of the big issues is the actual round it fires, a nine millimeter round. Um, you know, it's a pistol round. It's it's the, definitely the low end of sort of bullet power, if you like. Um, and also, that's an issue around uh, penetration. And the big problem with that is when you fire a round at someone, you know, you you need it to stop them. That's the idea. Um, we never shoot to kill in this country. That's never been a thing, and that regularly comes up in the press in the UK. Oh, officers were told shoot to kill. There's a shoot to kill policy. There's not. There never has been. I very much doubt there ever will be. Um, it's always shoot to stop. The aim point for an armed officer in this country, unless you're a, a rifle officer, a sniper as they used to be called, we're not allowed to call them that now because it's not fluffy enough, they have to be rifle officers, but um, is basically the centre mass, the biggest part of the body, which is you know the chest area, the centre of the chest. That is the area you're most likely to hit under stress and pressure. And again, you see in the news and in the press and online, why couldn't they just shoot him in the leg? Why couldn't they just shoot him in the arm? Well. If you're carrying a pistol, for example, you know, they're not the most accurate thing, particularly if you start getting a bit of distance, you know, five metres, seven metres, reasonably accurate. Start getting out to 15 with a pistol um, and that's quite difficult. And now adding, you run after the suspect, so you're breathing heavily, you know, you're under a lot of stress and pressure to be able to put that round on target neatly into an arm, you know, or a leg just isn't going to happen. So it's never, ever been trained. It's always the sensor mass the centre of the chest. It's a shoot to stop policy. The problem is, of course, if you're shooting someone in the centre of their chest, that's where the heart is. So unfortunately, the byproduct of that is there's a very high risk you're going to kill someone. Um, and that then goes on to create a lot of issues um, afterwards for the officer, not just mentally in terms of dealing with the fact that you've killed someone, but um, legally as well, you know, you'll have, uh, you'll be definitely, or almost certainly dragged through the coals in, in court, you know, and there'll be all sorts of, there could be discipline hearings, you could be suspended and all sorts of things. But again, we'll, we'll deal with that another day. Um, so at the time, um, a bit like the surveillance course we've talked about before, there was, um, 
something advertised within the police. I told you before that, you know, within the police, they advertise their own sort of posts and their jobs, whether you're going for traffic or CID, you want to be a detective, whatever it is, that gets advertised locally within your force and say, you know, we are looking for X amount of whatever. And that's what I saw on this occasion. So I'd already done my surveillance course, hadn't gone brilliantly, probably wasn't for me, but I saw this this course come out, advertise, you know, uh, we're looking for county AFOs, authorised firearms officers, um, and it had a little bit of spiel about, you know, this is what it involves, you'll be asked to do this, this and that. Um, and then basically an application form, you know, apply here, say why you want to do it, and then take it from there. So that's what I did. Uh, so I applied for this, and uh, again, you have to sort of say wh why you want to do it. Um, and then there's quite a lengthy process, you know, there's quite a lot goes on. So um, you do various things. Certainly you did something called, uh, well, down the line of it, once they'd initially sort of paper sifted out a few people that weren't suitable, you know, a few wannabe Rambos perhaps had been picked up that, why do you, you know, why do you want to do it? Well, I love guns, you know, and you're like, okay, uh, the door's just over there. I don't think you're going to be suitable for this, you know, but um, that's probably not the right thing to say. Um, so... Yeah, they would look at you in various ways and you'd be very much under scrutiny. So certainly we did some psychometric testing. Now that is a, a written exam and basically you're asked a series of questions, but in different ways. So they'll ask you the same question, but in about six different ways and they'll come at it from different angles. Not to catch you out, but to make sure the answer you're giving is actually correct and that you're not, and it's really how you feel, you know, you're not sort of putting it on for the exam purpose. And then that gets sent, sent away to some boffin somewhere who will sit there and decide whether they think you're mentally sort of suitable to carry a firearm. Now, there were some weird questions on there and you never really get sort of answers as to why or how you did. You either get told you're, you've passed or you haven't. That's it. That's all you've got. But I remember one of the questions was, do you ever feel like locking yourself in a dark room and crying? And But again, you're asked that in about six different ways. Um, and I thought it was a bit of a strange one, and I'm not sure whether anybody ever admitted to wanting to do that. You know, it probably was times in my career that I felt like that. But um, yeah, a bit of a strange question. Anyway, at the end of it, they say yes, you've passed. You know, the psychometric testing. Then you go off and do fitness. Now, fitness is a big thing for firearms officers because you definitely have to be fitter than your average cop. Um, you have a lot of heavy kit. You could be asked to. And it sounds a bit ridiculous from a fitness point of view, but you could be asked to, you know, lay very still for hours and hours on end. If you're containing a house and there's a bit of an armed siege going on, you know, you could be laying there for eight hours without moving. Um, but equally, in a split second, you could be asked to be up and running, sprinting, you know, for 100 yards and then take one of these carefully aimed shots under massive pressure, possibly with someone pointing their firearm at you as well. So fitness and this mental sort of stability was very much looked for. So the way they tested the fitness was the bleak test. We've talked about it before. It's a series of shuttle runs. There's a couple of different versions. I think now they've gone over to, I think it's 15 meter shuttles. And you think, well, 15 meters, that's not very far. But basically the bleep goes off and you have to initially probably walk um, from one set of cones to another that are 15 meters apart. And ideally, just as the bleep you know, starts again the other end, you turn around and you walk or run back. And the idea is just as that bleep is going, you arrive at the cone 15 metres apart. And what happens is the time scale of the bleeps going gets shorter and shorter. 
So basically you have to go faster and faster and it slowly builds up for different levels. And at the end of it, when you're absolutely run, you know, as much as you can and you're on the point of collapse, when you stop, you'll get a score out of it. You reach level 8.5 or whatever. And I think at the time, I think the basic AFO had to do level 8.6 on the bleep, which isn't massively high. I was never a runner and I could achieve that without too much problem as long as you were sort of vaguely fit. So you did the bleep test and also there was a bit of a, a sort of practical test and I think we had things like there was a 14 stone dummy uh, and that was in a playground area or, or in a, an area at the headquarters where you basically had to um, drag this dummy, you know, kind of 50 yards and then you had to pick up a, an enforcer, which is, you know, the door bosh of the big heavy sort of battering ram that you used knocking down doors, put that on your shoulder and, you know, run another distance. Then you had to jump over some things and duck under some things and carry some things and then maybe, you know, carry out some sort of written test right after it in the end. It was just to put you under stress and pressure, make sure that you could leopard crawl. That was another one because that's quite hard work. And I think that came straight after the the, the dummy drag, so you've just dragged this 14 stone dummy and now you're on your belly sort of leopard crawling. And, and it was a practical test because it was a reality, you know, you might be asked to carry um, an injured party, an injured colleague, you know, over a distance, you might have to run, you know, you might have to lift and carry and certainly it can be very physical. And again, it's just a way of putting you under a sort of pressure and stress and testing your responses to that. Anyway, I went through this whole process and then finally you come to a sort of board and interview with a number of uh, existing, probably like, you know, the, the weapons training sergeant and maybe the firearms inspector or someone like that, who will have a bit of knowledge around this stuff. And they'll ask you the same things really, so why do you want to do this? But more importantly, they'll say to you, have you spoken to your family about this? Do you understand what it could mean for you? You know, ultimately, you might have to take the decision to pull that trigger. And as we've already discussed, hitting that central mass um, you know, the, the, the byproduct of that is that one day you might have to kill someone, you know, as part of your duty. Are you ready for that? Have you thought that through? Have you discussed it with your family? You know, um, do you think you could do it? Now, no one really knows, although the training is very good. And by the time you get to the position, um, I think most people are, are ready for that. There was definitely some concerns. I, I worked with a few people where I thought, you know, no matter what happens, I just don't think they're going to pull the trigger. And that almost made me a bit nervous because no one wants to, for sure. But in the position that we may be put in, you know, you might have to. Um, a really, really difficult one. So I went on the course and I think the initial course was two weeks. Now, you might think, well, that sounds a bit short, but actually they pack an awful lot into that. So I think one of the weeks was... Um, and this was a fairly basic course. This was an entry-level course. And all they were asking you to do, basically, was contain an address. You know, you weren't going into addresses, nothing to do with vehicles. There was no vehicle stops. There was nothing like that. So I think they spent a week on teaching you how to, uh, how to shoot the MP5. And that was under various conditions. At the time, we carried um, two 15-round magazines um, that were sort of double-stacked side-by-side. So you had 30 rounds of ammunition in total for that. Now, they do make a 30-round magazine, which is like a long, bent, sort of banana magazine for the MP5, but we always favoured the 215 rounds because if you were prone, if you were lying down, it didn't hit the floor, it didn't sort of interfere with the floor because the magazine was a lot shorter. So there was a week of how to fire the weapon. Now, you know, like I said, within 15 minutes, you could be proficient with it, but you couldn't necessarily 
strip it down, you haven't dealt with all the different scenarios um, and uh, and the tactics, you know. So so that week was really good. You knew how to clean the weapon, you know, strip it down. You'd fired it from standing, kneeling, prone. You know, you'd fire it up close at sort of seven meters and at fifteen and out to twenty-five. And certainly, you were only trained to fire it out to twenty-five meters um, initially. Well, I say that. You could certainly fire it more, but the, the range that they used was only 25 metres long. Um, we did have a long long range day, so actually you'd fire that weapon out to 100 metres. Well, I can tell you an MP5 with a 9mm round at 100 metres is very, very ineffective. So it wasn't really um, designed for that, you know, and ideally there shouldn't be a scenario where you're in that position. But there could be, you know, and certainly there's been some jobs in the UK that that has happened. Um, so this this first week on weapons, learning the weapons, stripping it down, cleaning it, training, and and shooting, and by the end of that, you were pretty, um, you know, pretty competent. And also there was a test; you had a classification shoot that you had to achieve, you know, a certain scoring, and um, that might involve, you know, various uh, tests, and also not just on the shooting, but um, the procedures for changing magazines and firing X amount of shots, then changing magazines, then running to another station, you know, firing more shots, and then the, the amount of shots fired would change, so it might be two to the body, one to the head, you know, and things like that. Um, generally, that wasn't used, you know, but, you know, there could be a, you know, a, a possibility that might have to happen, you know, you might only be able to see a bad guy's head, for example, so that's a scenario if you can justify it, and it's all about justification, you know, you might have to fire a headshot. Um, and after that first week, they move on to the tactics. Um, and that was really interesting, actually, because you, you truly explore every scenario, or virtually every scenario you can think of in terms of when you may or may not pull the trigger, because that's the big fear in everyone's mind. You know, no one wants to pull the trigger unnecessarily. Um, and likewise, no one wants to not pull it when you clearly have to. So they would deal with all sorts of exercises and scenarios. Um, the other sort of one that could be a grey area was firearms officers don't just deal with people with guns. They also deal with people that, and the wording is, armed or otherwise so dangerous. So, for example, if there's been an assault and an axe has been used or a samurai sword, you know, or some other sort of weapon, a crossbow, that could also be a firearms job. Now, again, members of the public might be, what, you know, he only had an axe, you didn't have to shoot him. Well, I'm sorry, but, you know, have you ever faced a person with an axe, which clearly is very capable of killing you? You know, it's, it's a deadly weapon, there's no doubt about it. So that would definitely be firearms officers. And you could be called on, you know, to pull the trigger in that scenario. So they did lots and lots of, of uh, exercises, all sorts of scenarios. They started off basic, you know, it was a containment. And uh, you might find that generally AFOs always worked in pairs. However, in this scenario with county AFOs, if there was only two of you and you'd been asked to contain a house you couldn't split because um you had to um you had to have a second officer with you and that second officer had to be capable of dealing with the sort of less lethal threats so for example someone comes out of a house with a gun in his hand but doesn't point it at you he's almost certainly not getting shot however if he then drops that weapon and charges at you to want a fist fight again you're not going to shoot him but you need someone a colleague who can step in and deal with that in the conventional policing ways, you know, um, kind of unarmed stuff, you know, hand-to-hand -hand stuff, batons, sprays, you know, all those sort of less than lethal options, as they're called. Um, 
So in worst case scenario, you turn up to contain a house and there was only two AFOs. We need to surround this house, but how do you do that with two people? What would happen is we would basically pick a, an unarmed officer each, just a uniform cop that was there at the scene and they would pair off with you and you would take them off to opposing corners of the house so that you were able to see two aspects of that house. Now we always, the houses were always, um, the terminology we would use, they would be colour-coded, the sides colour-coded. So on the radio, you didn't have to shout up and say, oh, I'm looking at the house that is, you know, I'm on the front and it's the top right window and all this, you know. So what would happen is, and this came from the military originally, I think it was special forces, and certainly in relation to planes, because they're the same as boats in terms of uh, navigation lights, you know, starboard is green, port is a red light. So they, they would name these, because on the radio, you need to be able to give a snappy update as to where something is happening, rather than talking through all these various things. So the front side of the house would be designated early on the white side. Now, it wouldn't necessarily be the obvious front of the house, because it might be that because of the layout of the surroundings, other houses, other buildings, you know, if it's rural or woods or whatever, the natural front side of the house to you might be the end of it, effectively, the gable end. Um, but whoever got there first designated, I am calling this side with the red car, the white side. And from then on, everything went from there. And the saying was, if you're standing on the white and red is on the right, so the white side is to your front, the right side um, is red, um, a left side being the green side and the back was always the black side. Um, and then you would number off on the windows, so or the apertures, so it could be the doors as well. So the very bottom left-hand window would be 1-1. One, one. And that way, uh, it's the first floor and it's the first window, and we always counted off from the left. So white 1-1 one, one would be the front of the house, the bottom left window. And the idea was that rather than me saying, oh, on the front, at the window down the bottom left, I've got a map, oh, don't worry, he's gone now. You know, it's just too unwieldy to say it all. Whereas I'd just say, white one, one, got movement. Everyone's ears prick up and they know, you know, something's going on. It's on the front of the building and it's that bottom left-hand window. Um, it was a very good system, you know, and it didn't take long to get used to it. So we would talk containments. Uh, you contain a building, as I say, um, you'd split off with an unarmed officer, uh, so there'd be still two of you, uh, they would deal with the less than lethal, and normally I would have to give them a quick briefing and say, right, you understand, I'm dealing with firearms threats, I'm the armed officer, I'm carrying this weapon, um, I need you to stand beside me, never ever get in front of me, never ever cross me, um, because, you know, the last thing you wanted obviously was to shoot a colleague by mistake. Um, and, uh, but then you'd have to explain to them, I'm expecting you to be the less than lethal option. If this, and you talk through a few scenarios, if this guy comes out of here, you know, with no weapon in his hand, but wants to fight us, you'll be dealing with him and I'll be stepping back because I need to maintain that firearms cover. Because although he might present himself, you know, with bare hands and that he wants to, you know, to have a, a fight, um, there's nothing to say that uh, as he walks towards you saying that he's gonna fight you, he then, you know, produces a handgun from the waistband of his jeans in which case you'll be shouting to the unarmed, you know, and you'd have some signals, you'd pre-arrange them, get out of the way, um, because you now need to take this firearm straight on, you know, with your weapon. So, yeah, quite involved. Containments is what we dealt with, but we also dealt with a lot of stuff in the street because, so like a roving containment. So the scenario, and we've seen it quite a bit, where someone's now walking down the street with a samurai sword. Um, he's maybe shouting threats to people, he's not attacked anyone, 
AFOs get called and you're asked to contain it, well now you might have you know one armed cop in front of him, one behind him, and you're basically sort of walking down the street with him trying to convince him to put that weapon down. Excuse me, it doesn't mean you're going to be successful. But, um, you know, in that scenario, all the time there's no one's uh, life under threat, then almost certainly you wouldn't be firing. But that can change very quickly. So we would explore all sorts of possibilities that would really get you thinking. So that scenario, for example, with the samurai, he's walking down the street. It's a fairly rural area. There's no one else about. Maybe there's no houses at all. You know, or there's like one house every hundred yards or something. Um and we're relatively happy to walk down the street with him. We've got firearms cover on him should he charge at one of us with the weapon. But ultimately, we're able to deal with him, um, hopefully verbally, and convince him to put it down and take him into custody. However, that changes you know, very easily and very quickly. What if he approaches a house? What if somebody comes out of that house? What if we turn a corner and there's now a primary school where there's no kids out, so we're fairly happy? Now the bell goes and all the kids come out in the playground. And this guy is walking with his samurai sword, um, you know, straight towards the playground. Well, if you can't convince him to stop, and this was a scenario that came up once, um, if you cannot convince him to stop, he's got a samurai sword and he's walking towards a playground full of kids, you might have to shoot him, even though at that point he is not, you know, offering a threat to anyone. Um, imagine if he got in that playground and then started, you know, hacking kids to bits with his sword. Can you imagine not only how would you feel, but what the press and the public would say, you know? Um, so you might have to shoot him in the back. Now, you basically can't win this scenario, much like every other policing scenario, you cannot win. You know, you shoot him in the back, you're a terrible person, a coward who shot someone in the back. You don't shoot him, you allow him to wander into that playground, he starts hacking kids up with a sword. You know, you're a coward because you haven't dealt with him. What's the point in armed officers? They were there and did nothing. You know, so you literally can't win. And this is the sort of thing that they explore during this course. Um, if you do have to fire shots during the course, we use either blanks or paint rounds so you could see how accurate you were. But once that happened, once those shots were fired, um, you were in for a grilling. You know, everything stopped, end X, end of exercise, and you were taken off. And there was a big discussion on, so why did you fire? Was there other options? Why did you fire twice? You know, first one was okay. Second one, we're not sure you needed to fight. Was he still a threat? You know, and, and they'll play devil's advocate. They'll go through the, the whole thing. And in fact, the course ended with, they deliberately engineered it so someone had to fire shots. It didn't really matter who of the course. And I think there was about 10 of us on the course. But what happened was the full process then. So weapons were seized. We had to write statements. Everyone there was asked to write a witness statement as to what they saw. And it's incredible just how different um, everyone's statement was because we all stood and watched the same thing. But if you're standing 15 yards to my right and there's a car between you and the person when the shots are fired, you might see something totally different to me. So it doesn't mean you're wrong, it's just a different perspective and it's all about perspective. So it's quite interesting how these things are explored. Um, and then normally, and certainly on my course, they ran that through to a court case and one of the instructors would play the role of, you know, sort of prosecuting and the defence um, and you would be questioned in court effectively. In fact, we even used, they went down to the local magistrate's court and we were able to use that court for this exercise where the person who fired the shots was put in the box. Really unpleasant, you know, position to be in. No one wants to be, as they used to call it, gripping the rail, the rail around the edge of the box because that's a horrible place to be, being asked all these questions and, and basically, you know, sort of starting to doubt yourself perhaps if the questions came in a certain way. 
But that's what they did. And let's face it, it's far better to do it under this controlled environment. And it got everyone thinking. And out of, the, I think, the 10 or 12 people on my course, at this point, two people withdrew from the course. They basically passed. They were done. But they withdrew because it really spelt out what that could involve for you as an armed officer. Um, and uh, yeah, really interesting course. I thoroughly enjoyed it and, it. and it made me think for sure that my future was in firearms. It really tested you physically, mentally. I enjoyed the shooting. Um, without blowing my own trumpet, I was always a pretty good shot. Like I said, I've been brought up around shotguns and things. And uh, yeah, very much enjoyed the course. It was fantastic, but it really got the grey matter going and, and got you thinking about what would happen, you know, and you would always play through scenarios in your mind and be very interested in what happened in other forces and even other countries about, well, this happened and this man did this and the cop did that, you know, and you'd be thinking, well, what would I do in that scenario, you know? So, yeah, very, very interesting course. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, the training's fantastic and um, gets you thinking, as I say, a difficult position to be in and you almost certainly, like I say, can't win. Um, but that was the course. So I passed it and uh, came back to division then and I basically just carried on with my uniform work waiting for the call to say something had happened and we now need you to slip into that armed role come back to the nick we will arm you and you will go out and deal with um, with the threat uh, and that's what we're going to deal with uh, next week because within about two weeks of coming back from my course I found myself being in that position I was called back there was an armed job in fact I started it but we'll deal with it on the next episode Hopefully that was interesting for you. Um, we certainly raised a few questions and subjects. Um, look after yourself. Have a good new year. I hope it all goes well. And we'll speak again soon. Take it easy. Cheers. Bye.